0: Hello and welcome to Broadway Binge. This is Jeremy for our second mini-sode. Today we're going to be talking about Allegro, which is the third musical Rogers and Hammerstein wrote. They had wrote Oklahoma and Carousel, both of which were considered maybe the best musical that had ever been released at the time when each of those were released. So everyone was eagerly anticipating their third show, thinking this is going to revolutionize Broadway even further, and this is now going to replace those two as the best musical of all time. But unfortunately, Allegro is something of a flop, and it has basically been forgotten by history. I mean, other than sort of hardcore theater trivia nerds, no one really even knows that they wrote this show called Allegro. And there's another few Forgotten Rogers and Hammerstein shows that will definitely be covered on future minisodes. I think me and Juliet primarily. Flower Drum Song at least got a movie. A lot of people don't know about Flower Drum Song, but it's not totally forgotten. Um, but Allegro, it's I think the most interesting story It's not the kind of thing you should go out and listen to the soundtrack of necessarily, because it's honestly the worst Rodgers and Hammerstein music that I've heard. It's pretty boring and samey, but the story behind how it came to be and why it flopped and what its deal was, I think is really interesting, almost as interesting as the stories of their successes, if not more so. So I'll play little snippets of songs for you, but that's not really going to help you out that much. I'll basically just sort of run through the history of the show, and again, because this is a mini sode, I'm basically just cribbing from Wikipedia here, I didn't do the sort of research that I usually do for musicals, but let's be real, you were not planning on ever reading the Allegro Wikipedia page anyway, so this is this is going to be new information for you. So, the two of them decide to write this show, and it centers around the life of one man, Joseph Taylor Jr., from his birth into his mid-30s or so, the life of a small-town man, his father was a doctor... He becomes a doctor, and eventually he's sort of wooed away to the big city of Chicago in Depression Time because that's where he can get money, where he ends up making a lot more money but doesn't feel satisfied with his life, doesn't enjoy the big city, and eventually decides to go back home to his small town and be his father's assistant again, um, where that's really calling to him. It's a big departure from this sort of far away, exotic locales of their shows before and after this. And what makes it so interesting is that this has been sort of interpreted by a lot of people, people who both knew Hammerstein well and just commentators, that this is sort of, if not autobiographical of him, because he wasn't a doctor and he was not from a small town, at least this was a musical that Hammerstein needed to make. The world did not need Allegro, but Hammerstein needed to make it and get it out of his system. And he did, and then after it flopped, they sort of said, okay, right, enough of that. We've already sort of experimented with the medium of musical theater as much as we possibly can. Let's get back to what we were doing with Oklahoma and Carousel and just perfect the Rodgers and Hammerstein mold and make it less formulaic. But let's get back to that mold. So looking at the things that made Allegro different, one major thing is that it's a large cast and there's a Greek chorus, and what that sort of means is the people of the town all sing about the main character from his birth onwards, and there's not really any huge leads. Even the main guy only has one solo song as an adult. You get a lot of random townsfolk who in one scene might be playing some character like a girl he went out on a date with one time. She will sing a solo and then sort of retreat back to the ensemble. And a lot of the songs are shorter with the ensemb- one ensemble member suddenly playing a minor character, coming forward and singing a little bit, and then retreating into the chorus who sings about him. Very different from the stuff we've seen before and most stuff we've seen after. Some have described Allegro as ahead of its time. I think even now it would, or even in the decades after It still wouldn't have been successful. There's a reason it's never been revived really on Broadway, never been done in London. Um, But I'll play a little bit of the first song so you can get a sense of how it's these characters singing about him. So this song is about the birth of young Joe. Okay, so that's, that gives you a sense of what we're dealing with. The next song is called One Foot, Other Foot, and it's about him learning to walk. And that's reprised at the end when he's leaving Chicago to go back home. And it's, you know, reprises are often a big emotional impact thing, like, oh, I remember this tune, and now it's played in a different context, and I add so much emotion to it. But, I mean, for me, at least listening to the soundtrack, it fell flat. It did for most critics as well. Um, other ways that the show is experimental are that there were no traditional sets. Locations were suggested by platforms. There were images projected onto backdrops. Um, there were 60 partial sets, which were moved around by 40 stagehands. And there were 500 lighting cues, which was a record at the time. And even now, from uh, my sources, I'm told that 500 lighting cues, while well, not you know totally unreasonable for a modern Broadway show, is still getting up there and... It was just this huge production. You think because there is no set that makes it, you know, more spare and cheap, but because of how many partial sets they built, it was actually this monster production. Part of Hammerstein's intent was by not making it involve a huge set that would be easy for colleges to do, uh, very much like Our Town. He sort of thought of this as like the musical version of Our Town. Um, but in the end, it it just wasn't. Our Town can sort of can speak to anyone who sees it, I think. I mean, I know some people don't like Our Town. I love Our Town, um, and it really can sort of—any audience member can find something of themselves and the characters. But this uh, show was viewed as kind of preachy and moralistic, sort of anti-big city and pro-small town. And Hammerstein really uh, chafed at that and pointed out— that some of the most despicable characters in it were small-town characters, but he ultimately did accept the blame that, you know, he had failed to convey that fact to the audience, that he doesn't necessarily think small-town life is bigger than big-town life. Uh, Getting back into what the show is about, so uh, little Joe, he goes off to college and med school, and there's a girl who he was in love with in high school, and she sort of dates around, he dates as well, but he hasn't gotten over her, so he goes back home and marries her. And then the depression hits and they're very poor. And she is sort of materialistic and doesn't like that they don't have as much money. So she strongly pressures and guilts him into taking this job in a Chicago hospital that he had already turned down. And then she goes there and sort of likes the whole Chicago situation, but she ends up cheating on him. Um, and so Joe eventually leaves with his college buddy who also works at the hospital with him and this nurse, Emily, Who There might be some suggestion of romance between the two of them, but um, because this is 1947, he's not divorced yet. It doesn't seem as though they really pursue that angle so much. It's very moralistic. It's very much like big city people. They're all hypochondriacs. They're coming into the uh, hospital to complain about issues that aren't real. There's a very vapid cocktail party he attends, and he's just very much disillusioned with Big city life. They sing a song allegro. This is uh, maybe the only other song I'll play a snippet for you about how the city life in Chicago is too fast because you know allegro means in music sped up. So here is um, a little bit of the song allegro. Our world is for the forceful and not for sentimental folk, but brilliant and resourceful and paranoid gentle folk. Not soft and sentimental, folk. Allegro, a musician, would so describe the speed of it. The clash and competition of counterpoint. The need of it? We cannot prove the need of it. We know no other way of living out a day. It must be galloping and gay. We muffle all the undertones, the minor blood and thundertones, the overtones are all we care to play. <laughs> Hysterically frantic, we are stubbornly romantic and doggedly determined to be... Yeah, I, I, I sort of kept playing that, waiting for like the main chorus to come in, but this the musical doesn't really work like that, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, which is in part to its credit, but even if the music is experimental, that doesn't make it good. I talked in our South Pacific episode about how I sort of see two phases of Rodgers and Hammerstein's writing, at least Rodgers' music writing. There was the sort of earlier Oklahoma Carousel type music, which you can sort of Hear how those are by the same people and then there is the South Pacific King and I sound of music era where the music the orchestrations are just so much more interesting and lush and just the music is so much more complex and it just feels like better music and this is definitely in that earlier era if anything so they opened it up and Roger's son later commented on how a lot of the early parts of the show were sort of based on Hammerstein's own childhood. His mother died at 12, and I guess that had a big impact on him, and he spent a lot of time thinking about his young childhood. And the way that there was just this sort of person who, this doctor who suddenly became successful, and then everyone was asking things of him that he didn't necessarily want. I guess Hammerstein sort of had that struggle in himself. He saw himself as just a guy who was writing lyrics and suddenly Oklahoma came out and he wasn't just one of the Broadway lyricists now he was the guy he was the most popular lyricist in America and he didn't really know how to deal with that yet he'd only, done, he'd only just done the first two shows so this is a big thing that he thought a lot about and um, here's a quote from Stephen Sondheim who actually worked on this program I've mentioned before how he was Hammerstein's young protege and was learning lessons from Hammerstein about lyrics and things he was uh, serving as a $25-a-week gopher on this production, which meant you know he would fetch coffee and all that and you know sit and learn at the feet of the master while he did assistant work. And here's a quote from Sondheim about it. He says, Years later, in talking over the show with Oscar, I don't think I recognized it at the time. I realized he was trying to tell the story of his life. Oscar meant it as a metaphor for what had happened to him. He'd become so successful with Oklahoma and Carousel that he was suddenly in demand all over the place. What he was talking about were the trappings, not so much of success, but of losing sight of what your goal is. And I do want to take all this sort of stuff about, like, Allegro is actually about Hammerstein, with a grain of salt, because there's a huge temptation in all works of art to try to see in the art itself something of the life of the author. And I think... That might be a little bit reaching sometimes, just sort of trying to see meaning where it isn't trying to make connections where they don't exist. It's just, you know, part of human nature to try to connect things that don't exist. But in in Sondheim I think is especially guilty of doing this because he himself is a storyteller. He likes to make these connections and he always thinks he knows what he's talking about about everything. Um and often he's correct. I, I trust his vision and his opinions on Broadway things more than I trust my own, but I take this all with a grain of salt, but at the same time, I think Sondheim's probably correct here. Uh, He knew Hammerstein very well, and it does sound from all the the criticism and the words of Hammerstein's own son that Hammerstein did sort of see this as his own sort of show, um, like the show that he needed to write, his own personal pet project, and Rogers went along with it, and Rogers was on board with all of this, but it's also worth noting this is the first show they wrote that was not based on anything. Uh, Oklahoma was based on a play— Carousel was based on a play later, South Pacific was based on a book, um, King and I based on books, and um, Sound of Music is based on a true story, and I'm sure there was also some sort of book in between by the Yvonne Trapp family. So all those were based on true stories. Hammerstein was just inventing this fresh, and because of that, it's a little less elegant. So rehearsals started in New Haven, and it was a huge mess. There were injuries because of all these sets moving around. Also, they hired Agnes DeMille to direct and choreograph. She had choreographed Oklahoma and Carousel. We've talked about how her ballets are really strong moments of those shows. I'm not usually one who goes for interrupting the action with dancing, but in that case, it almost wasn't interrupting the action. The ballet was when the characters had these big revelations, and you sort of saw their inner thoughts. That was DeMille's specialty, and she also directed this one and the cast hated her. I guess she was just she wrote them really hard and she clearly favored the dancers over the actors. Sometime later when talking about the show called her a horror. She he said that she treated the actors and singers like dirt and treated the dancers like gods. She was I think an extremely insensitive woman, an excellent writer and a terrible director in terms of morale anyway. This was my first experience of bad behavior in the theater. And later on the cast was up in arms and sort of uh, revolted against her a little bit, and she just couldn't handle doing all of the dances and all of the directing, especially because they were changing the show on the fly. So at a certain point, Hammerstein himself stepped in to direct all of the dialogue. In terms of the cast revolting against Agnes DeMille, I should mention that I have experienced with a sort of cast revolt. Once in college, I was in a musical, and I only joined the rehearsal process maybe four weeks into rehearsals because I had been in another play that was going on at the same time and right as i arrived i realized that the i hadn't missed anything those four weeks because the director had not really blocked any of the scenes keeping a sort of improv vibe going so i arrived days before the cast held a secret meeting where we elected the lead man and woman in our cast to represent us and go complain formally on behalf of the cast to the board of the theater company that put on the show saying that we had lost faith in the director and from that point on, the chair of the company who was putting on the show sat in on every rehearsal to make sure that the director would actually uh, block the show. And it ended up going on okay, because you don't, you don't really need as much time as a lot of uh, college theater rehearsal processes take. So we managed to get the show up all right, but it was, it was kind of funny to be catapulted into this revolt. It was very exciting. Uh, so I know how those actors felt to an extent, I suppose. And the show was changing a lot. Hammerstein spent a whole year poring over Act 1, which is sort of Joe up until college. And then Act 2 basically came together in literally a week right before New Haven. And then they were sort of changing on the fly in New Haven. And it just went really quickly and hurriedly and just not very effectively. But because Rodgers and Hammerstein had such a great reputation, the show did amazing in pre-sales it actually sold $750,000 in advance sales when the top price for a Broadway musical was $6. So well over 100,000 tickets in in pre-sales. But then once it actually opened on October tenth, 1947, it did not do well in new ticket sales, and it basically bombed. The audience on opening night just didn't care. Uh, The reviews were really bad. DeMille's own husband, Walter Prude, which is a fun name, Uh, described he said that allegro went over quote like a wet firecracker and there was a lot of drama behind the scenes demille had some dancers had a dancer fired and a few orchestra members were fired ostensibly this was because they wanted to cut costs to try to get the show running all the way through the summer but the fired people said it was because they were involved in unions and it was due to demille's anti-union views that they were fired So then they all got reinstated because of this pressure, and it was just no good headlines and bad headlines. In terms of the actual uh, critical reception, some critics loved it. Brooks Atkinson, the famous New York Times critic we've talked about, said that it just missed the final splendor of a perfect work of art. So he wasn't totally on board, but there was one guy, Robert Coleman of the Daily Mirror, said that Allegro is perfection. But the predominant critical view was that this was really bad. Uh, Wolcott Gibbs of The New Yorker called the musical a shocking disappointment. Robert Garland in the New York Journal american said that Rodgers and Hammerstein had confused allegro, which means at a fast-paced, with, say, lento, which means slow, unhurried, and even downright serious. Um, some people were saying that it was formulaic, which for something that was trying to be so experimental, they were sort of reverting to tropes like the wedding scene, the the... New York or Chicago I guess cocktail party filled with you know vapid rich people it just wasn't great and Hammerstein was really upset about this Rogers as well but especially Hammerstein he thought that they didn't understand it and he sort of blamed himself but he sort of blamed the audience and then after this they just never went out in a limb this much again and really focused on you know just writing hits based on pre-existing stories and they succeeded in that quest so in terms of Allegro, I've basically given you everything you need to know. I've played snippets of two songs. Um, it, It was interesting. It never really got revived. There was a spate of college groups putting it on in the 1950s because if you don't have 60 sets and you just go with the sort of blank stage props and lighting situation, you can actually, you know, put it on on the cheap. But then it basically died away. It was never revived, never put up in London. There was a 2008 cast recording. Um, involving some famous people such as Audrey McDonald, Marnie Nixon, who we talked about in the My Fair Lady episode as dubbing for Audrey Hepburn. She played the grandma You had Laura Benanti, Liz Calloway, Judy Kuhn, Norbert Leo Butz, and even uh, Stephen Sondheim made some speaking. He spoke about it, um, and they even found some archival audio of Oscar Hammerstein. I couldn't find this 2008 version on Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere on the internet, so I couldn't play any of that. But there were no hits from this. Um, well, I guess, allegedly, vocalist Joe Stafford had a pop hit with The Gentleman as a dope, which I didn't bother playing. There's another song, A Fellow Needs a Girl, with which Sinatra took to number 24 in 1947, which is the year the show came out. I don't consider that to be a great hit. So, yeah, this was really kind of a failure, but it was an interesting failure. And I'm glad I listened to the soundtrack, and I'm glad I learned about it. I won't be putting any of the songs on the Broadway binge listen-along playlist on Spotify because I don't think they're worth it. And I wouldn't recommend that you go listening to the soundtrack either. But it's interesting to know about this show, and I wish you all a happy day and a happy week. And Hannah and I will see you soon to talk about Damn Yankees.